Hi all, welcome to another podcast with the Mental Health Foundation and the British Journal of Psychiatry. In these podcasts, we discuss a relevant paper from the British Journal of Psychiatry's highlights or kaleidoscope sections. Today, myself and Derek are at the Royal College of Psychiatrists and joined by a fantastic group of women to discuss a recent paper referenced in the February 2018 kaleidoscope by Carter et al., which found that women ask fewer questions in academic seminars than men and have different barriers for such behaviors. <laughs> This, of course, ties into a wider systemic issue which regards the advancement of women in mental health science and other related professions. We are excited to discuss this today with a range of experts to explore what their perspectives are on this issue and what we may be able to do about it. So, let's start. The format is slightly different today as we have a larger group, so both Derek and myself will ask separate questions to each panel member. We'll first do a round of introductions and then it's over to you, Derek, who will to elaborate on the paper and ask the first questions. So. Who would like to go first in terms of making the introductions? Would you like to start, Derek? I'm Derek Tracy. I'm a psychiatrist and I sit on the editorial board of the British Journal of Psychiatry. I'm Iris Elliott. I'm head of policy and research at the Mental Health Foundation. And my doctorate is in women's human rights and feminist socio-legal theory. I'm Anne Lee I'm a professor at Imperial College. I'm also a chair of the academic faculty of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and consultant Maria Thabuzan Jones, consultant psychiatrist and uh, head of the National Problem Gambling Clinic. I'm also president elect of the Medical Women's Federation. I'm Sunita Schroeder, I'm a GP in outer London and I'm also a tutor for medical students. I'm Sarah Rowe, I'm a lecturer in the Division of Psychiatry at UCL and my work involves conducting mental health research and teaching. I'm Dr. Kate Lovett. I'm Dean at the Royal College of Psychiatrists and a general adult psychiatrist in Devon. Okay, fantastic. Um, and I'm Josephine Breedveld. I'm the research manager at the Mental Health Foundation. Um, Derek, would you like to start with giving a bit of background to this paper that we'll be discussing today? Okay, you kind of covered some of the points with it. It's from the February BJ Psychoscope. Uh, it's by Carter et al. And it, it took some interesting ideas. It suggests that across Europe, about 60% of science undergraduate students are women. But by the time you get to tenured professors, it's perhaps 20%. So there's an issue going on there. And what they did in the paper was they went to look at men and women engaging in what they called academic seminars. They went to different lectures. And they found that across the board in their survey, men were more likely than women to ask questions, up to two and a half times more likely to ask questions. So they argued that women are literally less visible at seminars and they asked, does this tie in with this issue about career progression or what is happening? They noted that there are different reasons that are cited for, for asking questions or not asking questions. One of the things they mentioned was working up a lack or lack of working up nerve was um, more commonly cited by women. And what was particularly interesting, I thought, they found in lectures that if a man asked the first question, women were even less likely after that to ask a question. And they put forward this idea of a stereotype of a very confident male and that this is problematic. And, and in one sense, I thought there was an interesting paper. We put it in Kaleidoscope because maybe it named some things that we've seen but not talked about or thought about as much. And we thought it'd be a good idea to take it to the podcast. And I suppose for me that probably 
leads me to ask Anne the first question with your role as chair. Does it resonate in what you see in academic life? I think it does. It was it was it made me very, very much reflect on the recent seminars I've been to and the discussion at about how many speakers at meetings are women versus men. And I'm not sure um, that's rigorously looked at. I'm members of organisations where you have to have a balance of gender as well as country and speakers. So there is an active promotion. Um, Sometimes it does backfire, I know, when there's been an all-female lineup or an all-female congress, um, participation has, has been less. I think it's, there's a dual issue here for me sometimes to think about, because in our field of psychiatry, we are often seen as a very interesting discipline, but people aren't sure they want to work within it, and maybe broaden out psychiatry, psychology, sort of broader neuroscience. And so there's that plus the gender thing. There's, to me, there's two elements there, you know, certainly within medicine, we, we're not necessarily the most popular discipline. Um, and then for women as well, they may not be attracted to go into it. So whilst we may have 50-50 in terms of the first academic training post, the ACS, the Academic Training Fellows, as you say, by the time we get to prof, we're down to about 15 or 20 percent. And we need to understand that. So things that have been suggested is that if it's 50-50, first level, the next level you should also appoint 50-50. And that would be quite a dramatic change, but eventually you would hope um, you would would increase that. So I think academic psychiatry, we are in, uh, we're one of the professions that's reduced in number by about 20% since um, 2007, despite equivalent numbers of consultant psychiatrists. So there's a mismatch there. And I always think you would want to see, um, you know, when people talk about the best hospitals, the best place, they're always ones where research is happening. And I think women, we have a particular role to play, particularly in psychiatry, I think. Um, and so I think this highlights really how can we be the role models um, to encourage women to stay in this area of medicine. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating from that research uh, was that applying it to practical experiences, I teach epithelial regularly, I realised that actually that was quite true, um, but not something that I've ever considered. And what I'd like to say in relation to the fact that often it is a, a male student that puts their hand up first, you know, you've got a whole room full of people asking that first question that sets off the rest of the what I'd like to say is that actually the energy and drive of the room comes through later after the lecture. I get emails, endless emails, I get offers of help with projects and, and, and uh, requests of visiting my clinic. They are mainly from women, uh, but that's invisible to the rest of the class. So, Sarah. Um course in your work you work with many junior psychologists and psychiatrists uh, and um, as an academic what are your experience on this so-called leaky pipeline? I think in psychology there's probably better representation of women in that subject area um, so you do end up seeing kind of at least three quarters of undergrad um, psychology courses full of women and then even in postgraduate level, it tends to be around 65 to 70%. 
But then I think similar to other subject areas, the further along the career progression uh, um, path that you go, that tends to drop off a bit. So by the time you get to professor level uh, within psychology, it's about 35%, I think. And that leaky pipeline, if you want to call it, that tends to happen really in the transition from um, postdoc to lecturer. And so I think you tend to have around about 55% of um, postdocs in psychology that are women, and then it just tapers off um, as soon as you get kind of on that academic pathway. And I think there are probably a few reasons for that. Um, mm -hmm. I think the three over the three overarching things that I think um, affect this um, leaky pipeline are probably conscious and unconscious bias. Okay. Um, so for example, some conscious bias that an instance that I'm aware of is when um, a, a young um, female postdoc um, was told to go onto the pill by her principal investigator for the duration of her grant. Um, so, you know, these are situations that you hear about. Mm -hmm. um, so conscious and unconscious bias is something we need to address, particularly language. I think that's using references for women tends to be, um, kind of, tends to have, um, be less favourable, um, even when it's women using the language themselves. Um, could, you, I also, could you describe that better? What type of things do people say? Um, Things like enthusiastic and um, things that relate more to personality or image. And women are often judged by their accomplishments, whereas when you see references for men, it's a lot also more about their potential. And this comes through, I think, particularly um, in fellowship and grant applications, when people are looking at um, your profile and judging you based on that and whether or not to fund you. Um, so there tends to be, and that also happens with student evaluations, um, is my understanding, where again, um, women get kind of judged more negatively both on, on their teaching and also their appearance and their image. And that's quite different, I think, to how, how men are judged um, when they're teaching. And this is subjective perspectives as opposed to objective measures. So, you know, um, actual grades for students and, and independent learning hours, they're no different between men and women teaching. Mm -hmm. um, but those perspectives are there. And um, I think very quickly the other two points I would mention that affect the leaky pipeline, I think, um, are probably areas of some gender discrimination. So this might relate to um, early career researchers having problems when um, they become pregnant or also issues around sexual harassment. And then finally, um, I think there is a, a structural issue with um, how we uh, value um, male and, and female um, academics. So women tend to do a lot of other additional duties, things like being on committees, a lot of administration, um, pastoral support and teaching. Those things are not necessarily recognised as well on a promotion pathway because that's much more about research funding and publications. But if you're doing all those things, it takes that time away. And so, um, you know, it becomes kind of an impediment um, to your career progression. And I think those are issues where um, a lot of female early career academics tend to drop out um, rather than carry on the academic pathway. Sinisa, I wanted to move beyond um, just academic life into clinical life to work in medicine and your thoughts on women medical students and junior doctors 
in the, when you train them and what you see in terms of people's career choices? Yeah, so we know that um, school leavers going into medical school are predominantly female. Um, in my practice as a tutor, when we see medical students at year five, when they're about to graduate, um, between the young men and women, I mean, their aspirations seem fairly um, equal and predominantly based on their interests, their experiences and their ability. When we see these same people when they're qualified doctors in, their, uh, in the beginning of their training, we already start to see a shift in that. So what we see that the female doc junior doctors are starting to make career choices based more on the logistics of the job rather than their professional aspirations. And already there's this conflict between professional success and lifestyle coming into play and affecting their choices in a way that we just don't see in men. Um, later on, when we see these doctors as qualified GPs, we're simply not seeing the numbers of female doctors represented across local leadership in primary care. Um, and currently, I think this is seen as a choice that women are making for themselves, but I don't see that as a choice if there's not really much of an alternative. Um, there are many difficulties that we're facing in primary care with you know, unprecedented financial constraints and we have real problems recruiting and retaining and we certainly need to make the job more appealing to this group of women who are making up the vast majority of the workforce and make it appealing beyond just purely the clinical workload if we want them to take on other roles as well. Um, it's very clear that female GP, female GPs who are early in their career are looking for a model of flexible working and that needs to be able to incorporate other, other pathways as well. How does it translate into leadership roles within primary care? If we look at things like partnerships within primary care, if we look about uh, the LCNs or the leadership roles across that? So if I look in my locality or my borough, um, there's um, a, a very small number of women in leadership roles across CCGs, federations and networks, also amongst partnerships. When we talk to um, young GPs, um, very few of the female GPs even talk about having, looking at a partnership as a career option because they presume that it is not going to be compatible with the sort of hours and flexibility that they're looking for. And again, that's seen as a choice that they have to make. Um, it's, to use a phrase, um, having your cake and eating it is just not possible. Um, but then what that, what that is translating into is that we're just not seeing women go into the filter into these roles as a result of that. So, um, Henrietta, what are your experiences and thoughts on variations across uh, clinical professions? Do you think some are maybe doing better than others? Is it across the board? Or? Uh, well, interesting. there are good news and bad news. I'll start mm -hmm. with the good news because it's a very interesting few years we've lived through um, in medicine as women. We have a chief medical officer who is female. 55% of doctors in training are women. This is a, a factor of 10 in relation to what it was like 40 years ago. Uh, and several presidents of Royal Colleges are female.
things I'd like to focus on today, really, to bring your attention, uh, the group's attention to, are that um, despite this great situation, uh, consultant, female consultants are, are only 28% of the uh, total consultant uh, workforce. And we do need to address this imbalance a little. Uh, the second thing is, uh, you asked me about different disciplines. Uh, some specialties, such as pediatrics, often dying, public health, fantastic. They're actually just over predominantly female. Um, but there are uh, specialties, such as surgery, where seven out of eight surgeons are male. Uh, that, that is uh, something that we must focus on, and I think picking up on uh, other people's uh, points earlier on in this session, there may be issues about facilitating the training and making it uh, more uh, possible for people to consider this as a career for women. Lastly, and, and, and linked very much to what I've just said, I feel that we need to focus on reducing attrition overall, whether it's looking at flexible training, whether it's taking some of the research that has been done recently, of why are people who are so skilled and uh, so uh, motivated dropping out when it comes to being near the top of that mountain. Kate, I was going to ask you, as a representing college, what, what does the college do or what should the college do? Where are we at in psychiatry? Well, I think the college has a very important uh, role to play. The uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists is a charity, it's a membership organisation uh, which exists to improve the lives of people with uh, mental illness and uh, one of its key roles is to support psychiatrists in doing that. Um, we've touched on the, um, the idea of role models, having role models is really important. I'm delighted that two of our most senior uh, uh, officers of, of, of the college, um, of our honorary officers, are women. We have a female president, uh, we have a female um, dean. Um, and, and those uh, roles are, are, are powerful. I'm, I'm constantly being contacted by younger colleagues, keen to know how I got there, what the path was. I'm very sorry to say, however, that one of the most common questions I was asked when I was uh, appointed in, there were, there were two questions that people asked me. One was, what does the dean wear? Uh, and the second one in the 21st century was, and how is your husband coping? And, you know, it would have been nice if somebody would ask me how I was coping in the transition uh, and taking on that responsibility. So we've got, you know, we've come a long way. We've got a long way to go. The college is supported uh, by 200 odd staff, so behind the scenes uh, we have uh, an organisation and one of my roles as, as trustee is to make sure that we are supporting women uh, uh, behind the scenes and, and, and that, that we've got our own uh, house in order. So uh, we are very thoughtful about um, appointment of uh, trustees to our, our board, making sure uh, that um, they are diverse, a group of people. We're very thoughtful about our internal policies, uh, about um, uh, behavioural policies and, and, and discrimination and so on. I think one of the things that really uh, drives me is in a uh, NHS uh, that is short on resources, I think one of the biggest wastes I see on a daily basis 
is waste of talent and it's absolutely tragic to see people uh, in situations where they clearly have skills and talents which are not being facilitated and, and utilised. Um, so we are very keen as an organisation to help our psychiatrists fulfil their true potential. Um, one of the things I've done as, as Dean is to appoint an Associate Dean for uh, Equality uh, and Diversity to help us be uh, thoughtful about all our educational uh, policies. We also have appointed a, a, an Associate Dean for Trainee Support. Uh, and it's not just gender, it's, it, it's, it's the, the whole lot of different uh, issues. Uh, and sometimes um, we think about diversity and we think about diversity that's visible, but we need to be thoughtful about um, hidden diversity too. Thank you. Um, Iris, so looking at this um, from your perspective, you know, do you think from a policy perspective, do you think it's as, as a societal issue, how do, we, how do we move forward and what do you think the solutions may be? Um, thank you, Josephine. Um, I think it's really timely we're having this conversation in the centenary of the Year of Women receiving the vote in the UK and Ireland because I think it's a really important opportunity to be reflective of like these are the moves we have taken over time to try and address sexism, misogyny, discrimination and oppression of women and how far have those strategies taken us, how successful have we been and I think it's really welcome to sort of think about the number of women who are now coming in to medicine and are on, on different career pathways but I think also then more broadly it's looking at where strategies haven't been sufficiently effective. So they've achieved some results, but they are not achieving the results that women want. And I think one of the things that's really welcome is the degree of impatience that people feel and saying, actually, it's not good enough. We can, we can track progress, but that is not sufficient. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about this idea of the leaky pipeline is how that leak starts a lot earlier than you know first day of undergraduate training. And we need to sort of think about how are we getting women into third level um, training, but also with a, an element of diversity, as, as, as um, Kate has talked about as well, thinking about intersectionality, so we're not simply talking about women coming into uh, medical training, but we're also talking about members of black and minority ethnic communities, lesbian, gay, bisexual uh, doctors, um, very importantly people who come from lower socioeconomic classes, and the ways in which we are losing a huge um, body of talent because people simply can't afford the, the educational fees that they're now being forced to pay um, under current government policy. So I think we need to sort of think about the leaky pipeline quite broadly across the life course. Um, I think also we need to think about maybe measures that we have taken to try and accommodate the sort of discrimination that others have spoken about in terms of discrimination against women at a certain um, age of their lives with the presumption that you're going to have um, children and that that will damage your contribution in some kind of way. Um, and where we maybe have um, the kind of reasonable accommodations about people being more flexible in their working hours, that's one approach to doing it. But I also think we need to think about childcare provision. So we actually need to think about structural responses to potential areas of discrimination. I think it's really welcome we're talking about issues around sexual harassment. That's, that's happening globally, it's happening across society. We need to talk about what's happening in education, what's happening within the medical profession and the impact of that on um, women in, in medicine across their, their careers. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting for me as well in terms of the article is this idea of um, 
where it is visible that women's voice is not heard in medicine or that women's contribution is not heard in medicine. And, and as already has been touched off, it's not simply that voice is not heard in seminars, although that's important, but it's all the micro ways in which women are discriminated against, how men are given preferential treatment, preferential opportunities, preferential messages about their career path. Um, and I think we need to kind of look at that level of discrimination and hidden discrimination as well as um, more explicit ways. Obviously, also encouraging women to, to speak. Um, and I'm interested as um, uh, a woman at my stage of my career and sort of thinking, okay, well, what can I do quite specifically and proactively to, to contribute? And I do think we can, we can think about mentoring, we can think about sponsorship of women, um, but I also think we can talk about advocating for structural change. And I think we very much need to talk about discrimination and, and, and very explicitly speak about that. So I think it's really helpful that colleagues have shared you know, really appalling levels of discrimination about you know, being told to go into contraception um, when they're on a research grant. So I think we need to use our voice much more um, powerfully than we, we possibly have done. Um, but I do think what we are looking at is a much more um, societal level of, of change that needs to actually happen. Um, and I think one of the things that excites me working in policy is the way in which it's very clear that there are very um, embedded feminists across the system speaking in government departments, speaking in academia, speaking in um, research organisations such as Mental Health Foundation. And I think there's certainly different cycles within the women's movement. And I think now we're in a cycle of, of coming forward and speaking up, and speaking up as a very collective, solid voice. Thank you. Um, Beric, um, I wondered, I mean, as a man, what you're kind of from a, from a male perspective, what you're what you feel the role of men could be in this conversation um, moving forward and, and currently what your what your perception has been of kind of the paper and your work experience as well. It, it was interesting, it was just a reflection of mine in recent times in the coordination of this podcast has, has actually made me think because when we do these podcasts on a, every second month or so, there's normally myself and Josephine, we arrange them and then we record them together. And I was quite excited about the podcast, and yet my first instinct was, which I discussed with several people, was to not be involved in it. And my, my good instinct was to step back and to not, what I felt was intruding as a man on an issue. And you know, probably like most people, I think I'm one of the good guys, and I don't, I, and yet that, when I spoke to potential panelists about it, everyone said the same thing back to me. That's part of the problem. Men are disengaging from it. They see it as a women's issue. And it, it, it really forcefully struck me, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm, I'm in the podcast today, was my own reflection on it. It goes back to those biases maybe that are subconscious or where I just thought I won't intrude. And one of my anxieties with this podcast is I have an instinctive fear that the vast majority of listeners are going to be women. And I worry that men will see a podcast entitled Women's Science, Medicine, and will think that's a women's issue. And I think I think... Part of the problem is men are not engaging, and and I, th I think if I think about what's happened to me with the podcast, I think well-intentioned men are seeing non non-engaging as their contribution. They're, they're not standing in the way, and it's just made me think about. I, I think men have to be part of this conversation. So the, the paper looks at different things. So so men maybe may at times engage in different ways with it. Is there a role for men in 
thinking about their engagement with it, but they have to be part of the process. I don't know what the answer is, but what's been very striking for me in the last week or two organising this was the very strong solidification of the idea you can't, it, it's not a, a women's issue, if, if I'm not mistaken yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, and Link, what have you, do you, you wanted to make a comment on that? I think, as you say, I mean, it's, it shouldn't be a women's issue, it's just everybody's um, issue to bring to the table and find solutions. And I, I just want to highlight one area I think is around um, the time when people's career is developing is often the time when you, you meet somebody who wants to have a family. And clearly there are very obvious reasons why that could be difficult for women to continue working. Um, but they were saying for men, and actually I've had conversations with some of my male team who feel that they can't ask for more than the two weeks paternity leave. They feel that actually they uh, cherish the time that their uh, wife has had time with, with the, their um, newborn baby that they haven't been able to take because they are afraid to ask for that time. So I think I think that just highlights the complete disparity. And I know it's often said, you know, good working environment for women makes it a lot better for men as well. But, you know, dare I say it, some of the policies are being set by traditionally my kind of environment, older men. And I don't think that's how they see the role of having equal um, responsibilities in, in, in children. And then that taps into the flexibility issue. I often say to women, actually being an academic is much better than being a full-time clinician because I have flexibility when I work. Mm. And that is priceless. Um, I, but I'm also aware I'm speaking to an older mother. So I did become a mum until I was in my mid to late 40s. And I have therefore been able to make some choices that I would not have had at a younger age. So I think there is something around that that, as you say, there are particular issues I think we can focus on now to make it better for women and men at crucial times in that leaky pipeline. Yes, I'd just like to say from a primary care perspective, what I really feel that there's a, a lack of visible, accessible role models in primary care. And I'd really like to see that integrated into the curriculum and into the training so it's actually become something more formalised than ad hoc. Um, and I think that that role is so crucial. I mean, my experience of being mentored was um, the women that I was mentored by, the, the take on it was, well, I've been through it and it was far worse in my day, so you just need to really get on with it. And I, I just think that's no longer acceptable and we need to be willing to contemplate change. And the other issue that I find really fascinating is when we're looking for um, advertising leadership roles or partnerships, whatever bit, we tend to find that male applicants are um, applying or they don't necessarily fit all the criteria um, and they figure out how they're going to do that bit later, whereas female applicants tend to be far less um, inclined to put themselves forward because they continually worry about how they would fulfil the criteria and so hold back on applying. So it's a different take on um, how men and women sort of view their potential and possibilities. I'm so glad you, you raised this issue. I was reflecting uh, this week as I prepared to take over the presidency of the Medical Women's Federation that I had to wait until my 50s before finding my female role model. Yeah, and that is Parvin Kuma, the current president. So all my uh, role models have been male, wonderful male role models, but they have been the other gender. So that's interesting. I just wanted to give you one little anecdote mm -hmm. to talk about what I feel is very important, which is to encourage the young female 
medics to not be frightened of showing their competitive streak. And I do think that there is an element there, whether it's cultural, societal, or individual, I'm not sure, a combination of all. But um, what, I, what happened to me the other night, I was on the London Underground and I heard two medical students talking to each other and they were, it, it was a very funny topic. And eventually as I sat in front of them, I had to say, you know, actually I'm a medical imperial too, and we talked. The next morning, um, one of them sent me an essay to look through, uh, as I had mentioned, uh, that evening that it was uh, close to the deadline but there was an essay competition at the Royal Society of Medicine so he'd gone home at 2 a.m. he'd written up his essay and he found me on the internet because I hadn't given him my details and he wanted me to check it before sending it in he was so so keen to win that competition I mean that's that's just really um, such an interesting um, competitive streak that some people then may may show um, I mean, at the moment, we're moving to a kind of a wider discussion on, um, you know, what can we do next? Uh, what are the next steps that we can take um, as a group? And I'm really keen to hear from you, from your perspectives. Um, this is more a round table, so, uh, you know, feel free to, to chip in and we will moderate uh, kind of with hands who will, who will say uh, something. But would you have something to say about, you know, moving forward? Well, one of the things that we've already touched on and talked about is the difference uh, in gender splitting various medical uh, specialties. One of the things that the college does is um, collect census information about the various uh, subspecialties within psychiatry and we know that there's huge diversity. So at one end of the spectrum we have academic psychiatry which uh, is uh, least representative of women despite the fact that 50% of uh, newly appointed consultants are now women in psychiatry. Um, that's followed by forensic psychiatry which is dominated by men, followed by adult psychiatry, old age psychiatry is somewhere in the middle, I think they've got the balance uh, just about 50-50 and then we go through to child psychiatry which is uh, overrepresented by, by women and perinatal psychiatry and I think trying to understand the, uh, the gender split in those uh, different uh, uh, faculties and specialties is, is quite interesting. What's that about? Uh, quite often when I talk to uh, young colleagues um, about what they're planning to choose as a career, a lot of what they say is about the culture, it's about what the department's like, whether they feel they're going to fit in or not. And I think we need to do some very close scrutiny of the cultures that we develop, even within psychiatry. Um, what I would like to see is, is really a little bit more education of the educators and a little bit more education of the leaders so that the people who are recruiting are um, encouraged to take seriously the contribution of flexible workers and women in the workforce because it's very clear we've got a very large pool of talent um, that is not being taken appropriately seriously um, due to maybe they're, they're, they're wanting a, a different style of working and I think unless, unless we do that at a leadership level and as an educator, I mean, we're just going to continue to lose this group of uh, women. I would agree with losing the pool of women. So I was having a discussion with a colleague last week and we were emailing back and forth. And she said, I'm right, I'm off home to, to go to my kids now. And we sort of concluded with thinking the idea that we, are, as you say, we're sort of, a lot of women are actively choosing 
it's, it's, it is an active decision because they, they just can't see a way through how they can work flexibly and be supported to do that. It's just too much of a juggle. And um, so many are then leaping into phenomenal other careers. But as you say, we've lost that talent within NHS, within academia, within the educators. And those role models therefore do disappear. Um, I'm set because I'm seeing a female academic, you know, would I see people to mentor them? And, and I, I do see a lot of people. However, I've often questioned, am I a good role model? Because I live away from my family for the moment. And I have a young daughter. So I, that, that's had to be, I have made that as a positive choice with a lot of discussion. But I think the other thing we're not thinking about is the team. Um, the reflection about, you know, and I remember being at an interview where I was asked, haven't I got a maternal bone in my body? Whereas my husband was asked, primary carer, how he was coping not being at work. And both of us sat there slightly astonished. So I think that is the debate, but I think women, I think you could say, um, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but we're leaving thinking, we're not putting up with this anymore, and we're leaving. And I don't think our organisations, the NHS, etc., have woken up to that yet. The answer has to be uh, in part to do with what you were talking about, Derek, it's got to be working together, uh, men and women, belonging, medical profession, working together on solving any of these issues. And I'm impressed by the uh, British Medical Association approach on the gender pay gap, for example, where it is equal representation, men and women, on an issue that is so important. One of the things that sort of strikes me is we, we probably need to know more information about what needs to be done. Um, I think when we're in the position with the World Project Psychiatrists, having such a wealth of, of talent across the organisation in different spheres and, a, and an interest in, in taking action around it, there is scope, I think, with, with the college to be a, an exemplar in terms of trying to uncover you know, what are the issues through actually asking the membership. And then from that, um, essentially research with, with the membership, constructing what, what would a good environment look like to, to bring um, women through and for women to succeed in all different areas of the, the specialism. And I think we can, certainly from, from the other people's <coughs> ideas coming through, but actually making that decision to invest as a, as a college in let's find out and then also then let's look at what um, moments of opportunity there are across somebody's career path what can we individually contribute to that? But also, I think from a, a structural policy point of view, what policy needs to be in place within the profession, but also I think communicating that out to the, the NHS or to, to academia as well is really important. Because I, I think when I'm in these kind of policy conversations, um, sometimes it's quite speculative about, oh, well, we think you know this hasn't worked very well, but we think if we do this, that would be what people want. But I think really we don't know the detail of what actually people want. And I think within that also ascribing responsibilities both for women and men across the profession. But also I think looking to, um, to government and just saying, you know, there are things that need to specifically be, be tackled. Um, the other thing I suppose I'm interested in is where there's opportunities for accelerated change. So I was talking to a, um, a very senior official in the government department in the last couple of weeks where she was saying that um, her director had brought together the, the the team to sort of say, what can we do about equal pay because it's a massive, massive issue. Um, and it turned out that all the people who were senior officials making that contribution were women. 
and they would just say, you just make a choice. You know, you just make a choice that what you're going to do is give us bonuses, you're going to accelerate increments, and that is a choice to do that or to not do that. And I think going back to the point I was making earlier, I think people are impatient. I think it's quite time to, to make those changes. Um, and I think it's it's not enough to be passive and say it's not good enough that we'll have to wait 10, 20, 30, 40 years to get um, that become the pay currency. We actually need to sort of say we've got the resources to do this, but do this now. Yeah. From an early career academic point of view, one of the things that we found quite helpful was when I was working at King's College, um, I was uh, chair of the postdoc committee and, and we had a group of committee members and um, we ended up getting involved with kind of central kings really and and getting ourselves at the table of those conversations so um, as a postdoc we were able to sit in on department executive meetings and be able to you know say what would help us in terms of our career development um, also we got to be um, kind of independent observers on um, grant panels so we could observe the process that it was fair um, we then put on kind of workshops that were helpful for what people were wanting um, in terms of areas of support, so that it might be um, about parenting and what they were, what they could access in terms of maternity and paternity leave. Um, also, assertiveness training, um, alternative careers outside of academia, things like that. Uh, and basically, in order to support women and also mentoring. Um, but I mean, it was for all early career researchers. But I think that it's particularly important for women at that point because that is kind of the, the transition, um, the point where they're dropping out. And um, and also not just having that fix the woman kind of attitude, looking at the system. I mean, is it, you know, are we, should we continue to look at the system and, and think it's okay that we're just looked at in terms of publications and ground income? Maybe there are other skills there that should be valued and we need to reassess that system. And also what you were saying before, Derek, about getting men involved in the conversation. We have charters like Athena Swan, um, which are incredibly helpful and are becoming very important in order to get grant funding. But women are still predominantly doing the work, even on Athena Swan, for the applications. So, you know, men need to be involved in this, and um, I think that's really important for, for going forward. And so, from your perspective, um, Derek, what would you see in terms of next steps? I think from a, a, a men's perspective, I think it is waking up to this idea that to say crudely, it's not a women's issue. This is a societal issue, and I think for too long men have seen it as something for women to fix, and that they agree with the principle, and but they're just passive. And I, I don't think that's it's not adequate. It's not sufficient. This is a, like to like to say the systems issue. So I think the conversations have to bring men. I I, I think they will engage now, but I think they haven't woken up to it as being part of their professional world too. Um, I mean, just building on that, I suppose we do often speak about women role models. I think male role models are really important as well, and I've heard some fantastic stories of leadership by um, male colleagues, for example, um, a senior academic who was pointing a number of points within his um, department and he appointed all women. Um, and, and through that, that period of several months, they basically changed the, the leadership within that whole area of the university. So, but I think actually sort of saying, you know, this is what leadership by men looks like in, in this area and giving some good examples. Um, and going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, women senior officials saying to their male director, 
this is what you can do, you know, often he can step up and say, okay, well, I will do accelerated day comments, I will do bonuses, I will appoint um, women, I will allocate um, the resource of professional development to women within my, my team. So I think, but I think to be able to sort of say, this is kind of what it looks like if you are going to be a leader and contribute as a, a man in, in solidarity with your women colleagues. I think it's, I mean, like Esther, I've had some fantastic um, male uh, role models and mentors who've really helped me and uh, completely women. What strikes me as a head of a, a centre of psychiatry, Imperial, we actually have more senior female academics than male, and that's a switch in the last few years. But what I often hit is that, well, it's not about, it shouldn't be, it, and it is not about positive discrimination. We've appointed the best people. But I think some the here the, the often unspoken fear is we're asking for positive discrimination, and I really don't think that's what we're asking for. We're asking for a level playing field, and we're asking for a, the systems to be looked at to see whether it is functioning. Because as I alluded to, and has been inferred by others, that the system isn't really working for young men either, who want to have um, a choice about how they spend their time at those critical career points. And I think we do need to be allowed to have that um, flexibility. So um, I have walked into a room and been heard, have we sorted the token woman problem out? And I've arrived and I've said yes. But I was always told by a female, very senior professor in this country, you've been invited into the room, always make sure you're invited back on how you've behaved and how you've contributed. And so I think we have to take every opportunity. So I just want to sort of bring out the positive discrimination because nobody's mentioned it. But I think that's often the people think that's what we're asking for, but I, we're absolutely not. I think it's, it's a systemic change to how we lead in our talent. Thank you for mentioning that, and that's a really important issue that uh, we were uh, we haven't touched on until now. Yeah. So thank you all very much for your contributions today. Um, I mean, having listened to these conversations and to all your um, fantastic perspectives, I'm, I'm, I'm going back and kind of reflecting on it and thinking about the next steps, of course. And I hope that, you know, people listening to this podcast will also do that and maybe take some of the points raised forward in their own uh, work and, you know, continue the discussions as well um, outside of this podcast. Um, I mean, the figures are there. Um, the anecdotes are there for sure, which we've heard today. Um, I think this paper was really helpful um, just to raise an issue, um, a systematic issue with data, because from anecdote, of course, I've, I've seen it happening. I've experienced it myself at uh, conferences and in other aspects of my life. But of course, it's, it's just having that information there to then have such a fantastic discussion with people. Um, and I'd like to finish with um, kind of the final sentences from uh, from the February 2018 highlights, which is, uh, it's 2018, folks. So, you know, we are in 2018. So let's move forward and um, look at the system, make it a level playing field for people. Um, I like the idea of role models and also not to forget about what men can do in these conversations. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your contributions, and um, I look forward to see how this discussion develops offline as well. <laughs>